Hello and welcome to Coffee with Algomi Consulting with me, your host, Pierre Vahare. Today's podcast is a first in our new series titled 360 Degree Readiness, where we're looking at ways the investment management industry is shaping or reshaping their business models in a very fluid and probably volatile environment, characterized by inflation, if not stagflation, climate change, geopolitical uncertainty, and high-speed digitalization and technology advancement. In this context, today we're going to talk about one of the key pillars of the industry, the financial regulation. And to do so, we want to examine how the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, has been and still is adapting to this rapidly changing environment. The FCA has published a strategic plan for 2022-2025 and subsequently a business plan for 2022-2023, outlining how they intend to execute their strategic plans. These plans reflect FCA's new approach to focus on outcomes rather than on processes and to regulate across sectors as opposed to across segments. Why this shift in approach and what does this mean practically speaking for firms in the investment fund industry? How should we interpret these plans? How can they adapt and prepare, especially as they operate across multiple jurisdictions besides the UK? To discuss this topic today, we're joined by two senior regulatory experts from the industry. James Ross, a senior industry practitioner, former head of regulatory developments at Columbia Thread Needle, who will be joining Binance, the cryptocurrency exchange very shortly. Good morning, James. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. A pleasure. And Raza Naim, a financial regulation partner with Linklaters in London. Good morning, Raza. Good morning. Great to be here as well. Pleasure to have you here. So let's get started then and maybe look into what is exactly this strategic plan? What is it and what has changed in the FCI project? And I wonder if you want to open that conversation, James. Thank you very much. So my observations of this plan, it's important to note that this is Nikhil Rafi's business plan. It's the first as a CEO, and he's very much sought to put his stamp on this. And the plan is drafted slightly differently from previous plans. I feel it's a very good document. It's very clear. It sets out three clear objectives which the FCA want to meet as ends in themselves. It has five generic strategies in which the FCA will employ to meet these ends, two of which Raz and I will probably talk about in detail, which is the drafting of new rules and also this concept of the three harms, which is very important. And I'd see this is the kind of key changes in the plan. And then across the plan, it sets out other very specific, measurable, achievable and realistic time-bound actions which the FCA will take to meet the three objectives. And it's a very good, solid document. It's very transparent. It allows certainly the MPs to look at the FCA because it's very clear deliverables that the FCA have to, to meet to be able to challenge them and whether they're meeting their statutory objectives. Thanks, James. I think this whole outcomes-based focus is actually very recent rhetoric coming out from the FCA, and I think it's a step in the right direction in some ways, given I think often people complain that financial services legislation has become far too complex, and in many ways we got up in the technicalities, not so much thinking about the end customer outcome or the harms that you mentioned. So I think the overall policy approach that the FCA is taking, perhaps in a post-Brexit, new nickel regime world, all seems very sensible to me. Thank you. One question that comes to mind as we're, we're looking into it is, what is motivating the changes in approach with the FCA? What are their incentives um, and or do they have any pressure points that got them to change their approach? 
So the FCA's plan always reflects the risks in the external economy and the regulatory system, which the FCA need to mitigate. So that's always a driver. The FCA always start with the question, what's going on in the external context? And the plan seeks to mitigate those harms. I think one of the things which is driving the change in focus and which boards should be hearing and seeing in their board packs and management information is this concept of three harms. And this is hard coded into the rules. And this is the obligation on firms broadly to buy and mitigate harms to customers identify and mitigate harms to the market in which they operate and harms themselves, which if crystallized would cause onward harm. And I'd just like to unpack the customer harm rule here because there's some subcategories of harms here that boards should be thinking about. So we've got the broad obligation to identify and mitigate customers' harms brought in via the Prudential Review and the IFR and the IFD Investment Firm Regulation Directive in Europe. And in the UK, we've got further subcategories. So if a firm subject to the operation and resilience requirements, there's an obligation to identify harms to customers which they cannot reasonably recover if an important business service is unavailable. So that's a very important consideration for boards. And then there's a further harm being introduced via the consumer duty, which is the obligation to mitigate foreseeable harms to retail customers. Raza, what are your view on the three harms and what boards should be doing and seeing? Thanks, James. From a practical perspective in terms of the harms piece, in some ways it's a whole new language for boards and organizations to get familiar with. I think the focus, again, has been very much on technical terms, but now it's very much what are the harms that you're doing as an organization to your business itself, to your clients, to the financial services sector, and that's shining through in everything from the operational resilience requirements, the consumer duty, as you said, or even the prudential requirements. And I think that the first thing therefore boards need to be comfortable with is they understand and they can identify as part of their organization what harms they may face. Are they comfortable that the organization is appropriately addressing all of those things? In some ways, as part of the ACARA assessment that firms would have had to do for their, or will be doing actually right now for their post-IFPR world, should identify all of that because it's very much harm-based potential regime now. But they need to be thinking about it more like, for example, is it embedded within their overall culture of the organization? Do employees also think about this from a harm perspective? Are they addressing things properly and effectively? So I think making sure you have the right understanding, it's flowing through your culture in terms of your policies, procedures, actions, everything else. I think those are the immediate key steps that I would say that both should be mindful of. Could you share some practical examples of what you've seen in the industry on how this would work concretely? I suppose we're looking at this business plan and strategic plan, which are new in the Air Force, we can't help but ask ourselves, do I need to change everything that I have built over time? Or are there some nudges that I need to take to make sure I can be compliant with the expectations of the regulator? So with the three harms, the practical steps is that, again, this is evolution, not revolution. It's a, a new lens which boards should be looking at when they're managing their business. So if they have retail customers they at the forefront of their mind, before they introduce a new product or they take any action, they should ask the question, what is the potential foreseeable harm to the retail customer? When they're designing and building out new processes, it's important to ask, if this service meets the definition of an important business service, what would be the impact on a customer if this service wasn't available to the extent to which they cannot reasonably recover? And then if the answer is quite substantial, then you'd have to invest in people, processes and systems to make sure that service can be continuously provided. It's a broad obligation to mitigate harms to customers, clients and firms. So what does that mean? 
is that the old Basel categories for investment firms such as credit risk, op risk, market risk fall away and are not as important as the three harms. That means that you have to change your risk register should clearly delineate traditional risks, mapping away from operational risk to the three harms, noting that there might be some overlap. And you should have a documentation that you've assessed the three harms in your policy and procedures, in your product approval process, in your product governance processes. Mm -hmm. It's a large repapering and training exercise that the three harms should be at the forefront of not your risk management uh, framework, but your harm management framework. There is explicit requirements to identify and mitigate the three harms. So boards should be seeing in their risk registers, they should be seeing reference to the three harms. In their management information, they should see reference to the three harms. In terms of when things go wrong in their root cause analysis, there should be explicit consider, well, this was the harm to the client and the root cause was X, Y, Z. And so it, it, this should be the new language and the lens which the board looks at and looks through in managing its business um, to take in consideration regular requirements. I think a few observations I would make, you'd have to go back and look at your organization holistically and your framework and think about harms and if they're being properly thought about and addressed. But I think it would very much be a layering or restructuring around it as opposed to a fund fundamental rewrite or, or change of what you do. Ultimately, the way I see this, let's take a practical example, actually, if you look at the Woodford Equity Income Fund and all that happened there, yeah. the FCA basically were obviously taken aback by all that happened. And in terms of all of the proceedings and everything else, even though we still have to see the final outcome, the view was, well, actually, what Woodford did wasn't great, but it was technically within the spirit of the rules, was what they were landing on in terms of, say, the assets were ultimately listed, even though by him, on the Guernsey Exchange. What this now does is, Yes, technicalities may work, may be fine, but is that what he did or what happened with that fund ultimately promoting a good customer outcome? So I think what the FC is doing is responding to situations like that, say, yes, these rules are technical, these things happen, and sometimes they might get you to certain outcomes. But you stepping back as a board member, as an organization, does this particular course of action seem like it would be promoting end good customer outcomes or not? And if not, then you shouldn't be going ahead. And what board should be very aware of, they have retail customers there is a, a change in the exposure here. So in terms of your scope, even if you don't have a contracted client who's a retail customer, but within your ecosystem, there is a retail customer, the consumer duty imposes on you an obligation subject to proportionality to take into consideration how you could potentially cause uh, foreseeable harms to retail customers in your chain. So an example of that would be, should you provide a product for a firm that puts it on their platform to be available to retail customers invest in? Even though they're not, those retail customers are not your customers, what the three harms concept does, and specifically under the consumer duty, is that you need to consider if you have a material influence over um, the price and outcome, the value uh, and the service and the customer understanding. I think that in some ways, I'm not quite sure where one begins or stops with the consumer yeah. duty. I think despite all that I've said about it being helpful from an outcomes-based perspective, the rules and the principles are becoming more understandable, less complex. It does, however, ultimately leave a significant element of subjectivity, like how does an organization work out if they are promoting good customer outcomes or not. Ultimately, in the financial services sector, people are there to make money. But there's the question of, well, is the consumer duty therefore creating a very paternalistic regime whereby you must take responsibility for the bad actions of retail customers? And if you look at the FCA guidance to date, it suggests when no, you should be able to assume retail customers have autonomy, proper decision making, provided they have been equipped by the right tools by the organization. But drawing that boundary, the distinction in terms of did we give all the right tools, the right 
product information disclosure ultimately it was just a bad investment decision made by the retail investor versus us it's very tricky again the, lots of benefits of having a more principles based outcomes based regime but it does therefore mean that a fair bit of discretion and judgment needs to be exercised by boards organizations which you will be judged on in terms of hindsight so there is and helpfully an element of complexity there and I just, another point the board should know is that this new focus from the FCA on retail customer cognitive bias. So this is new for the industry. This is hard-coded in the rule. As part of integrity, boards have to ensure that they take consideration to a reasonable extent when designing products or when communicating with products that their cognitive bias. And what that mean is should something go wrong and an enforcement lawyer looks at your particular activity there and they would then look at the rule on integrity and taking reasonable steps. And they will then look to the boards and say, you didn't take into consideration cognitive bias in, in designing this product and consuming with this product. And even worse, these were vulnerable customers. Rather, thinking here from the industry on how do you approach retail customer cognitive biases? I think it's very difficult, James, is the short answer. Also, because I guess in some cases, if you're thinking about, say, fund managers, they won't necessarily have that much direct interaction with the end retail customer, and they're very heavily reliant on distributors to give them that sort of information. But if you're a distributor, I guess uh, you may well have those interactions, but you will have supply distribution chains and whatnot and be reliant on the information coming through. Those information challenges exist. I think the helpful thing is in the FCA consumer duty, there's now a strict obligation on people to pass information up and down the chain, which may help from that perspective. Again, much of the product governance stuff, which people are familiar with in the context of MIFID, and it's at the heart of the consumer duty as well, which is step back and say, if we're designing a product or a service, this is the end retail customer, reasonable retail customer we should be aiming for. These are the aims or aspirations or the outcomes this particular retail customer wants to take. Will my charging structure result in a bad outcome? Will there implications happen from that perspective and so on? Ultimately, from a board perspective, keeping the concept of the end retail customer and what their interests would be at the forefront of your mind is really key. One thing that concerns me about the whole principles based approach really is from an FCA perspective, their enforcement ability has become much simpler because it's very easy for them to say, we don't think this was a good customer outcome. We're going to take action against that. So that is something I'd be very mindful of. And I think, especially when launching a new product or like distributing a new service or product, firms should actually do a good customer outcome assessment, I would recommend, and actually use those yeah. terms so at least they can point to the FCA that they've thought about those things. We understand what you're saying. Think about outcomes harms, mitigation of harms. It sounds like it is a holistic, collective and coordinated effort in terms of making sure everything is in place. These changes in the approach of the SCA, what implications does it have on the nature and model of interaction that investment managers have with the FCA? I'd see good news here in the sense that for your traditional interactions with the FCA, this is not going to change. If you're a supervised firm, you have your conversations with firm supervisor or who arrange firm-specific matters, but also industry-wide concerns, so that will carry on. You can continue to expect dear CEO letters. I think what comes out for me essentially new is that the FCA has always been on the front foot and has always been highly engaged with the industry. What, what I note there is one of their strategy levers to achieve their three outcomes is that they're going to use authorization and deauthorization of firms, re removing firms' permissions more proactively. It, it's always important to note that the UK authorities set the regulatory bar high 
and they always lead in terms of innovation and approaches to supervision and enforcement. I think what we could probably start to see is that we've had promises of a data-led regulator for, for many years now. I think the technology is starting to crystallize and bear fruits where the FCA can use and make greater use of technology and data. My overarching views is that the FCA has been fully engaged with the industry, very proactive. Um, not going to go away. It'd be interesting to see what they do with authorization, deauthorization. I think the OFCA has always been a very proactive regulator and actually very open to engagement and discussions, which is great. And hopefully that'll be reflected in what we're expecting in terms of the consumer duty final proposals as well. Going back to the earlier question, I think in terms of your engagement with the FCL, it shouldn't fundamentally change things, but you obviously need to make sure you're cognizant of their priorities, what they're thinking about, and can speak the lingo of harms, consumer outcomes, and so on. You should expect your compliance officer to have read and reviewed the FCA business plan and where they've been really explicit of their concerns, that should be in the compliance plan. You should have regard and it should reflect the business plan. And then where the FCA state that they're going to draft new rules and guidance, then that should also be incorporated in some change plan as well. And if it's a big project P rather than a small project P, you should be discussing at this stage, what budget does the firm need to effectively put that change into to effect? One of the things that the FCA do now acknowledge uh, and see as a firm risk is the volume of regulatory change, not just in the UK, um, but also internationally. And they expect firms to be on top of regulatory change. And certainly your, your clients of firms always ask in RFPs, have you implemented this legislation? Are you on track to implement this new legislation. I think there's a growing acceptance that regulatory change is business as usual and not just a one-off change. That's a, a very good point and a good segue into a question we ask ourselves. We, we did reference FCA being very innovative, raising the regulatory bar. Is this change in approach or this innovative approach specific to the UK or do you recognize it across other jurisdictions that the UK-based investment managers have to deal with. You distribute funds based in Luxembourg or based in Dublin. You distribute in Asia, so you deal with the Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan regulator. How does that look? And from the perspective of our listeners, how do they coordinate between a very innovative UK regulator and the others? We can split this into the UK and Europe. What drives UK regulation, as I said at the start of the plan, is that the FCA always take a, an external context risk assessment. What's going on in the economy? What's going on in society? What's going on in particular markets and segments? And then they identify potential harms and risks that need to be mitigated. And that feeds its way into the business plan and that drives rules and changes. The FCA is also the PRA, always on the front foot in terms of keeping its legislation and regulation up to date to reflect changing risks in the external context. Europe is slightly different in the sense that the process is different there. The European Commission will come up with a particular strategic legislative plan, which will include new items and finishing off old items. But it's important to note that what drives a large volume of change in Europe is because in each piece of legislation, there is a review clause. So we've had MIFID 1, there was a MIFID 2, MIFID 3 is under discussion, FMD 2 is under discussion, MUSITS, I've forgotten which one we're up to. Uh, and then there's always this constant repapering upgrade of legislation hard-coded into, into the rules. So the volume of change is always very high in the UK because the UK is always on the front foot and an infant to Europe, hard codes legislation. We've got this market in the crypto assets legislation number one just being finalized and they're already talking about version two. 
you know, the, what they want to add into version two. So it's regulatory change is a constant, mostly driven politically in Europe, but mostly driven by risk in the UK. The rest of the world, particularly in Asia, they look to the UK uh, and they see them as a front foot regulator setting high standards. They generally copy that. The good news for both UK and Europe is that the UK authorities are very clear on what rules that they're going to introduce and what rules they're going to update. It's in the business plan, it's in the regulatory initiative grids. The board should be making sure that their legal departments and also their compliance departments have read the regulatory initiative grids and that's in the relative plans. And then Europe is also very clear as well because they set out the Commission's priorities where they're going to introduce legislation. So you get a more legibly implementation timeline in Europe than you do in the UK. I seem to observe that post-Brexit, where we would have two to three years to implement some new legislation, it seems to be that the standard time is 12 months. In some ways, uh, the idea is quite good at getting industry feedback, reflecting on that, making rules on that basis. And that often then therefore means they tend to make the rules once and then not update them every now and then. Especially if I look at like the spate of ESG legislation, they seem to make the rules and want to revisit it afterwards based on, say, what's happening in the industry and the feedback. Whereas in the UK, I'm finding the FCA is taking a more measured approach, trying to make sure they get it right the first time round and think about international convergence and so on. I think the UK definitely is a much more measured regulator. I think they're sort of in this interesting phase as well, post-Brexit, whereby they now have this new mandate, whereby in a way we'll be getting rid of all EU retained law and then dropping it all in the UK and making changes. The FCA therefore have to fundamentally rethink their approach and their strategy and all that. And I think the one thing I'd be very interested to see is a lot of the focus so far has been what should we keep? from the European rules and what should we get rid of, less more imaginative thinking about which area should we be focusing on or which area should we be more creative in terms of, say, our local domestic regime. It'd be good to see more of that from the FCA, less so in terms of what doesn't work from Europe to in terms of what is a good outcome from a UK regulatory perspective. And I guess a consumer duty, they'd probably point to something like that, but we need to see more of that in, in other areas like fintech and cryptocurrencies and so on and beyond that as well. The elephant in the room in the business plan I would see is the digitalization of financial services and also the crypto markets. Now, a lot of attention has been placed on ESG quite rightly in implementing the ESG rules. But I think the industry and board should know and start asking themselves the questions, how can we benefit from digital smart contracts? How can we use distributive ledger technology? I know that the IA, and particularly John Allen, is really pushing for the UK to start publishing rules here so that the investment association and the industry can take advantage of these new smart contracts and these new technologies, which do offer a lot of promise for the industry. Europe are already on the front foot of drafting and adopting legislation to support the digitalization of the funds industry and access to crypto markets. As a, an industry, competitively, we could find ourselves in the UK behind Europe we're already starting to see a legislative framework and a regulatory framework for crypto assets and markets, whereas the UK are slightly behind. I think it can have pretty uh, fundamental implications for the UK financial services sector and the asset management industry specifically. There's a lot of innovation and growth in that sector that we're missing out on because in my experience, many asset managers that I speak to, they, they're reticent because they're not seeing any proper formal policy from the FCA and they're like, oh, should we go ahead and do this or not? Are we going to be breaching laws, policy and so on? So in the absence of a clear policy or regulatory framework, from their perspective, lots of reticence, people are holding themselves back. But in fact, actually, there's so much they could be doing in terms of investing in fintech companies to even, say, using fintech operations or digital solutions in terms of their activities and how they do things, be it from subscription redemption of fund units to like even issuing tokens, funds. What we really need is some clarity and definition in the UK. Because even when I look at 
distributed ledger technology and the rules in the UK in terms of like ownership transfer and so on, they're not very clear. Now we end up with common sense conclusions and we say if this is all okay, broadly speaking with this caveat of, but this has never been officially considered or opined on by the FC and, and the regulators. What we need is for that to go away because ultimately it's a risk-based assessment for farms. People get comfortable, but then people aren't really proceeding with it in the market. Whereas if the FC and the UK authorities came out and said, this is a framework, this is what is permissible, what is not, we think ownership is transferred or not from that perspective. I think you'll suddenly see a lot more happening in this space. That's brilliant. I think this is taking us to the end of our podcast. It's been a very, very rich conversations and you've been providing a lot of insight. Still, I would like to ask you, what would your free top advice be to our listeners as they prepare to shape or reshape their regulatory model to meet the expectations of the FCA or other regulators? So number one would be, if you don't have it already, you should have a specific business unit within your legal compliance operations function dedicated to changing the firm from a regulatory perspective. And that unit should be comprised of lawyers, regulatory professionals and project managers because regulatory change is business as usual, it's ongoing and it should be appropriately budgeted. Number two is, if even if you have that function in place and they're doing all the work, you should with particular complex changes, you should partner with an external third party, being a law firm such as Linklaters or a, a consultancy firm, to get them to provide assurance of your work, because particularly the potential review, that's new to everyone in the industry as a whole, and often no one knows the answer, but you need to take reasonable steps. And my, my third point is what I call the Brexit paradox, that now that the UK is a third country, European financial markets still remain the UK's largest market. And what the Brexit paradox means is that although we're no longer part of Europe and European legislation, third countries can influence the outcome of European legislation. So we need to be more engaged in Europe and not less engaged post-Brexit. How about you, Raza, your three top advice? Well, I think uh, drawing on some of the themes that uh, James has mentioned and the stuff that we talked about earlier, the first one is making sure you, uh, you learn the lingo and understand the lingo as well and reflect that in your day-to-day -day conversations, be it at board level or within the organization and ask the right questions from stakeholders in those terms of like harms, consumer outcomes and so on. The other one would be the culture that we talked about earlier, making sure that all of this is reflected in terms of the tone that you're setting from the top, the organization values and culture and so on. I know a lot of firms say that they put retail customers for example, at the heart of their operations, but it really making sure that that is in fact the case and that you can demonstrate and evidence that. And the last one would be just engage with the industry, with the regulators, not just locally, but more internationally, because all of these firms will have global operations and you can come up with solutions and regimes that work for all of them, because ultimately, and helpfully for all of us, different regulators speak slightly different languages, but there's lots of commonality in what the FCA is saying. Thank you to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did this conversation on the new approach at the FCA and the very practical implications for the investment management industry. As I mentioned in the introduction, this was the first episode of our new podcast series titled 360 Degrees Readiness. We look forward to you joining us next time. If you want to discuss this podcast further with us, have any questions on the series or would like to get in touch with us, Contact us through inquiries at algomi.com, via LinkedIn, Algomi Consulting, or via our website, algomi-consulting.com. I will look forward to hearing from you. Thank you and goodbye.